0: Good morning. Good, morning. good morning, It's good to see everyone this morning. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter three. I would encourage you to continue to pray for one another and pray especially for Steve as he continues his recovery can also pray for uh, Michael's sister. She is in her last days, and Michael doesn't believe she knows Christ as Savior, so you can pray for her as well. I think it's important to keep one another in prayer. The Bible tells us repeatedly to pray for one another, and in fact, we see even the apostles and their request to the churches to pray for them. They prayed for, bo- they, they requested prayer for boldness and, and for opportunity and strength, and so on. And I think we, as we consider prayer as a church, we need to remember its priority. Now we don't understand how prayer works because we know God works in our lives, but God wants us to partner with Him, and we do that through prayer. Do we not? And the objective is prayer is prayer is for people to know the Lord Jesus better, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to stand for Him, and whether that's bringing people to know Christ, or or encouraging believers in Christ. It's part of the disciple-making process that God has, has told us to undertake. And we find in the gospel the, the power of God to tap into the, the power we need, the strength we need for the challenges of life. And so we should pray for one another. We, we, we need to pray for one another because we all experience trouble in our lives. You know, Psalms 46 reminds us that God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And we all have trouble, in various ways. We all experience trouble in our lives. We're all broken. We all have our struggles. You may not be public, but we all have our struggles. We have weakness and temptation. We have struggles in our relationship. Sometimes it's our health, our finances. Sometimes it's just time crunch for what things that need to get done or whatever the case. We all have our struggles in life. You know, Sundays we tend to come to church to put our best foot forward and, you know, and put on this, this, this almost a facade in a sense. In reality, Inside, we, are, we all have our difficulties and struggles and challenges. And that's the glory of being accepted in Christ and accepting one another in Christ because we're in this together. And, you know, prayer draws on God's power for help for one another. It's a ministry we undertake. It's a ministry we're told to be part of. And that's why prayer is a service born out of compassion, the compassion of the Lord Jesus. The other frequent reference to one another is in the Scriptures is to love one another. John 15, 12, so Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And, and Jesus' desire, and we talked about this the other night, is that his family is characterized by love and compassion, isn't it? God says, Jesus says, we're known by his love. That should be the, re- the recognizing mark upon his children. And praying for one another is simply a part of that family concern, isn't it? And whether we pray for those in service, as Paul requests prayer for himself, or praying for one another, we ought to be a praying family, because we are a family. The local church is a family of believers in Christ, growing together and serving together as we worship God together. And so we're helped, and that's one way we love one another, is out of concern, to be aware of each other's struggles. We don't always know all the details, we don't need to know the details, but we all experience challenges and frustrations and failures, and we can help by praying whether we pray privately, whether we gather at prayer meeting to pray for one another and for the things that concerns us in our lives. Or when we gather as friends, we need to be crying out to God. And I think one of the important things to keep in mind as a church is this idea of praying for one another, not just when the worst of the worst attacks a family, but always when be keep each other in prayer. And prayer doesn't need to be necessarily emotional, but it should be passionate, isn't it? As we're concerned It should be the cry of the heart and love and concern for one another. And that's what God calls us to do. In reality, the format doesn't matter. Sometimes as believers, we get too focused on the format, how we pray. And when we focus on format, we're really focusing on ourselves and our enjoyment of the experience. When we focus on others, format doesn't matter, does it? We just need to cry out to God for one another. And that's the passion God wants to develop in us, in our lives to have that concern for one another, whether it is a health issue or a spiritual struggle. We all have struggles in all areas, and we need to bring lift each other be up before the throne of grace. You know, I think as we do that, that we also maybe learn to grow a little less private, if I, if I dare go there, because we're so protected. Uh, people might know we have cracks in our armor, and we don't want people to know that, and yet we all have them. And we probably all know each other has them already. And when we find those in the family of God that we can open ourselves up to, we find support. We find strength in their loving compassion and their concern for us. Because we're in this together. We all have the same needs. And we learn to confide on one another, lean on one another, take counsel. And Proverbs repeatedly tells us the wisdom of taking counsel from one another. And the whole point is that we look to our great and awesome God together for help. Because that's what he's there for. Prayer taps into that. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says, Therefore, we also we pray always for you. That's the apostle and his team writing. We pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his, this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith and power. So Paul prayed for his, those he ministered to. He said, we pray always you can picture Paul walking along the dusty roads you know, praying for those he was ministering to. Now someone might look at this and says, you know, when he says what Paul says, I'm really praying for your success in your Christian life, if you summarize this first, someone might say, well, you don't think I'm being faithful in our pride? No, we all need that prayer to be to, for our growth in Christ. Then, then later in that same book, Paul says, finally, brethren, pray for us as the apostle, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we might be delivered from unreasonable wicked men, for not all have faith, and so on. And I just wanted to mention this this morning as we're thinking of praying for each other in our desperate needs, and we all have desperate needs, and we really don't have a legitimate excuse for not being a praying family, do we? Other than our busyness and our time and our schedules. But we do have numerous reasons to lift one another up before our faithful God, a God of love and power who answers prayer. And we find that God answers, and sometimes when he answers, it not only works on the one we're praying for, but he brings us in a line with his work as well, as we work shoulder to shoulder as soldiers for the cross. Because we all need the power of the gospel working in our lives, and we all need to pray for one another to that end. So I just wanted to mention that this morning as we're thinking of praying for those especially in need to remind us of the priority and importance and the privilege of having that kind of camaraderie, fellowship, union, and compassion for one another as a church family. I'd encourage you to be part of those in our church that would be a praying church. Well, now let's turn to the message this morning after we got that sermonette out of the way. (laughs) I hope you take that to heart. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3 here for our scripture reading which is our text for this morning, verse 27, where we left off in our study last time, says this, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him that works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is a counter for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who hears our prayers, Father, and he encourages us to align ourselves with you in our, our prayers. And Father, as we come before you in worship and thanks and praise this morning, Father, we would desire that your will would be done in our lives, in our church family. And Father, we pray this morning as we study your word that t- today the Lord Jesus would be exalted before us, that we might discover more of the beauty of his, of his holiness and the glory of his person found in the wonder of the gospel. And Father, we pray today as you teach us that we'd also be ready to hear, that we'd that we would be Christians who are awake to righteousness, that we'd be alert to the things you are trying to do in our lives as you seek to teach us and mold us and make us in the image of Christ. Thank you that the Spirit of God is at work and the work that you have begun, you will continue. And Father, may be those who listen and respond today uh, as your Spirit teaches us. And Father, we do pray for those who have needs. We lift Steve up once again before you today and pray that you would continue to strengthen his body and help help and heal the things that are ailing him. And And Father, for... Michael, a sister, Father, who is nearing the end, Father, she needs to know you as Savior, and I pray that you would open her eyes to the the beauty and the wonder and the love of the glorious gospel of Christ, that she might be able to spend eternity with you. And Father, we do pray for others who have needs today, Father, unaware of some here than those who are away from us today, that you would minister to each one, for you are truly a present help, and you know exactly what we need, whether it's in our spiritual struggles or physical struggles, God, you are for us, and we're thankful for that. And we commit one another to you in prayer this morning and pray that we'd learn to trust you, look to you first in all those struggles we face in life. And so, Father, we're thankful for each one who is here today and just pray that you'd be glorified as we study this passage together. Be our teacher and guide now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last time we left off in verse 27 that describes to us the fact that boasting is eliminated in the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's where we left off last time, and that discussion is going to continue here in this passage. And as we look at these chapters, you know, the first three chapters dealing with with the sinfulness of man and these next several chapters dealing with the gospel of salvation that answers the need of the sinfulness of man, we might think, boy, there's a lot lot of chapters here going to this topic and this subject. And, you know, God, and and Paul, in his writing here, comes at this argument from several different directions to support the fact that justification is, by faith, apart from the works of the law. And after a while, you might think, okay, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. You know, but it goes on and on through chapter 4 and into chapter 5. And I believe it's because God wants to be sure that we have our foundations right. Foundations are important, aren't they? We're, what, what, what we build on. And our foundation is the gospel, is the message concerning Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He is the chief cornerstone. It's upon him we build. And when we, and it's important that we get our foundation right, our understanding of the message of salvation right. And I believe that's why God spends so much time here on this subject. Because when we have that foundation right, we first of all have the assurance of our salvation. I have found in my years of pastoring and and, and Teaching people that when people have assurance issues, it's because their foundations have been shaky, when, right from the beginning. And when we understand that Jesus Christ was the propitiation, the complete, final, once and for all payment for sin, issue settled, debt paid, and that God promises us freely the gift of eternal life, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that issue settled because it's not dependent on me. It's so when we start getting our eyes on ourselves that we become we we become unsure. When we focus on the message of salvation, the cross of Christ and the promise of God and the assurance he gives us, that issue is settled. It's important to have that that foundation right. It also gives us discernment towards false messages. Those false messages that do creep into the gospel. When your foundation is right, you begin to recognize the error that sometimes comes in to the message of salvation. It also gives you discernment and, and understanding in your Christian life. Because we continue to live by grace. We live according to the principles and concepts of grace in our lives. And when we understand grace in our foundation and, how, and what God has provided for us, it helps us to understand how we ought to live because we live by grace. And all, God provides all that we need for life and godliness as well. And so foundations are important. And here Paul goes on in this argument that he mentions in verse 27 that, that justification is not by law. And he comes to some conclusions here in this passage. A couple of concluding statements. And and they both might still be directed at the Jew on one hand and at the Gentiles on another. Because he wanted the Jews to understand that Judaism wasn't exclusively for them and that they had a, a system of, of their keeping their Ten Commandments, their law, their Mosaic law, in order to get to heaven. But he also wanted the, the Gentiles to understand that salvation was freely available to them as well. He wanted to level the playing field, so to speak. And so he comes to these two, two conclusions from this passage we have been in, verse 28. He says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. I, I like the simplicity of that. A kind of a simplicity finality to that statement that salvation is by faith alone apart from the deeds of the law. And that's a foundational truth. And if, In fact, if, you under, if we understand that biblically, how important that concept is, that salvation is apart from any effort of our own, then we'll, under, then we'll discern those messages that sometimes allow man's effort to infiltrate the gospel message. And so he makes this conclusion that we're justified by faith alone. Faith is the way we appropriate what God has freely provided because Jesus paid it all. He was a propitiation for our sins. That means he satisfactorily paid the payment for sins upon the cross. That's settled before God. Sins have been dealt with, taken care of, no matter how big, bad, or ugly. Sins are paid for once and for all and forever. And therefore, God offers to us that to us freely. And here, God is not only addressing the Jews, but religions of all ages that, that teach that salvation is accomplished by some sort of works. Because the Ten Commandments, the deeds of the law here represent all religious laws that promote salvation by trusting in our good works or our morality. And, And he comes to this conclusion, simple conclusion that justification being declared right before God is by faith. We often think we have to earn our right before God as religious folks. We find that here, but the Bible makes it clear that we're justified by faith, by simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to the second thing he wants to mention in verse 29 and 30. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is not also the God of the Gentiles. Yes, of the Gentiles also. He wanted the Jews to know that they did not have an exclusive right to Jehovah just because they were God's chosen people, just because God did give them the law, with the intention that they share it with the world, but they weren't exclusive. But he also wanted the Gentiles to know that they were included. The gospel was in, is inclusive of the Gentiles, which means the gospel is available to all. That's what he's saying here. He's a God who here of, of the Gentiles also. And he wants the Jews and Gentiles to recognize that. There's one true God over all mankind. And at times the Jews got so privileged in their religion. They didn't think the Gentiles even had a right to their God. And yet here Paul makes it perfectly clear. There is one God, and he goes on to say, since there is one God who has one plan for salvation. He's going to justify the circumcision, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcision by faith. So salvation is available to all, both Jews and Gentiles, because there is one true God over all mankind who has one means by which we appropriate the gift of salvation, faith, to all. God justifies all classes of humanity by one principle, faith. There is none who are more privileged than the others, is there not? And what we find in reality, sometimes the religious folks are the ones that are harder to reach. They're the ones that leave themselves outside of the gospel because they are insistent on being dependent upon their moral or religious works rather than seeing themselves on the, on the playing field that we saw in Romans 1 through 3, which levels the playing field that we all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He then goes on to, answer a, to address a question that must have been of concern when he says, do we, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. We establish the law. Maybe one of Judaism's concern or one of their arguments they brought to the fact is that these preachers of the gospel, the preachers of Jesus Christ were saying that we're were taking God's holy law and throwing it out. That appears to be their argument here. They thought that the gospel disregards, dispatches, and eliminates the law, and yet you know the jewish people experienced the giving of the 10 commandments and lived it out for many lived under that economy for many years and and of course in their thinking besides that they thought the law was intended to be a means of salvation and and so they were concerned that this this new gospel is just taking the old testament and saying let's just you know tear it up and throw it away and paul says that's not the case here because the thinking behind that concern was the Jews' perversion of the law, the way they understood the law. And from God's view, first of all, the Ten Commandments, the, the centerpiece of the law, were simply a declaration of God's holiness and His righteous standards. He never intended it to be a means of attaining heaven, and that was a Jewish confusion. And that was simply God's standards. And we saw in Romans 3, 19 through 20 last time, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. That was one of God's purposes in giving the law. Therefore, verse 20 of chapter 3, by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And when we stack ourselves up against the holiness of God, we, verse 23, come short of the glory of God. The law was not meant to be the legal basis by which God could declare us guilty, and we could see our sinfulness before God. That was God's intent. It was never intended to say, here, keep these, and you get to go to heaven. You don't find that. The Jews are the ones who twisted that. Secondly, in the law, the sacrificial part of the law, all the sacrificial system, they were intended to teach Israel something. They were a type, a picture. They taught that sin required a penalty, death. They taught that an innocent substitute could bear the sin of the guilty, all those innocent lambs and animals, which all were intended to point to a future Savior. We see Jesus called the Lamb of God in the New Testament. We see his description of being holy, harmless, and undefiled, and so on. We're also told in Hebrews 9 and 10 that those sacrifices could never take away sins. They were a temporary covering, an atonement. Only Jesus could and did because he became a man, a spotless man, a sinless man. And so those sacrifices weren't meant to be a means of heaven. They were meant to teach the importance of the innocent dying for the guilty in order to extend forgiveness to the sinner. The feasts and the holy days of the law, all those things, all those feasts and holy days were attended by God to remind Israel of great things that God had done for them. That's what they were meant for. They weren't something, well, I've got to go to church on Easter and Christmas in order, to do my, in order to punch my spiritual time clock so I can go to heaven. Well, that's how they viewed the feast. They've got to keep the feast. Oh, they had to keep these feasts in the holy days because it was part of their good works program. God never intended that. They're simply a celebration. Look what God has done for them when he reaches all the way back to the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea and sustaining them in the wilderness and so on. And they had celebrations that related to their current harvest and God providing their needs from year to year to year. And those are all to remind Israel that he would continue to keep his covenant promise to them. You know, when you consider the law, this is, this is what its purpose was. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says this. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. That was that, uh, the law, the Old Testament Mosaic law was simply a shadow, as, as Hebrews call it. A picture to teach them these lessons. It was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer a, a tutor, under a tutor. And it doesn't mean that we throw the law away, but its purpose has been fulfilled. It brought us to Christ. It pointed All those things pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And the Jews, in their twisted understanding, didn't understand that. They just thought it was all a good works program on how to get to heaven. Just like many religions we find today. And so their concern, once again, was that the believers in the gospel would just take the law and say it's, it's, it's no good because it didn't get someone to heaven. But instead, Paul says here, in reality, the message we preach establishes the law. It brings, it brings understanding and meaning and definition to the law. We establish it much more than Israel ever understood, in their, at least in the Judaistic religious part of their ex- existence. So, what does he mean by that? Well, we saw, we've talked about that already. The law rightly used declares me guilty. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Rightly used, rightly understood, the law simply says, you know, I can't live up to it. James said, tells us that if we offend even in one point, we're guilty of all. And so my admission of being a sinner acknowledges the righteousness of the law and my guilt as a sinner. The second thing, the way we, the law is established is Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of the law. I mentioned this verse, but Hebrews 7, 25 through 27 says this. Though he is able to save, therefore, excuse me, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not, does not need daily as the high priest in the Old Testament to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He didn't have sins to pay for. He, was, he fulfilled the law. Therefore, he became qualified as the lamb, the innocent lamb, the spotless lamb, the unblemished lamb, fulfill, fulfilling the picture of the law. Where he established the law in the sense that the innocent Savior died for the guilty sinner. The third thing, third way, in which the law is established through the, through the message of Christ, is Jesus bore the curse of the law in our place. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When we stack ourselves up against the Ten Commandments, we're guilty. It, pre- it pronounces a curse upon us. And the Old Testament picture pictures for us that death is the, is the required penalty for sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus redeemed us from that curse. He became a curse for us. He satisfied God's curse upon the sinner. That's what propitiation is all about. He paid the payment in full. And therefore, he fulfilled the law. The law ran its course. It declared us guilty, and the price was paid. In fact, the, the depths to which God had to go to secure our forgiveness, our pardon, establishes the validity of the law, that, that that penalty was very real and had to be exacted, but God sent a substitute his own son, Jesus Christ, to bear that penalty for you and I on the cross. And so the penalty was paid by an innocent one attaining the forgiveness on the basis of that sacrifice. So the law has run its course. Does it mean that we disregard the Old Testament? No because God's standards of, tru- of, of truth and righteousness are eternal truths. They go on. It's still wrong to lie and steal and so on. Those are eternal truths. But we're no longer under it as an economy, and it was never intended to be a means of heaven. And so we, so through the gospel, we see the law in the right perspective. We establish it. We understand its role in, in life and in, and in history. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this to believers, so let no one judge you in food or in drink and regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which were a shadow of things to come. But the substances of Christ, they were the shadow. You now have the reality. And if, if you ever had a spouse off serving in a foreign field in war and they came home and they came running to you on a sunny day across the parking lot, you wouldn't run and grab, hug the shadow, would you? It's ridiculous. In fact, it's really a stupid illustration. But you get it. There are substances here. The substances here—the old law was the shadow, was the picture. The substances of Christ, and so we no longer have to keep those all those holy days and festivals and new moons or Sabbaths because they all pictured the reality. We now have the reality of having Christ in us. So the work, of, the person, and work of Christ, the gospel, doesn't eliminate the law; it is, it's satisfied and it establishes the law. And Paul wanted them to understand that which would settle whatever argument was going on between the Jews and the Gentiles, what other misunderstanding there was, he wanted us to understand that, that the law has its role, and its picture has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. And its righteous standard still declares guilty, do they not? Well, going on then, he after he clarifies that issue, he turns then to Abraham. Verse 1, what, what about Abraham? And in he, and here in this chapter, a chapter which is primarily about Abraham, God here is going to use three things that were, that were valuable to the Jewish people, the religious Jewish people. One was Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews. They claimed him as their father, and they assumed in that claiming that he, his theology was the same as their theology. That was just their assumption. He was their father, and through him, God called the Jews, through him, the, the, the descendants of Abraham received God's law and the promised land and the everlasting throne and so on. And he's also going to quote here David in this portion. The hero king of the Jews, so to speak. The one they look forward to, the one they knew that God had promised a throne forever. And so David was, was one of their emulated heroes in the Old Testament. And he's going to quote them. And once again, the Jews would assume that David would agree with their theology. And here the Bible is going to use it to contradict the religious Jews, to show them that justification is by faith alone. The third thing he addresses here is uh, circumcision. And that was their cornerstone good work, wasn't it? That was their highlight good work in order to get to heaven. And that was the message that we find as, as the church began to grow, that the Judaizers promoted to the churches. Well, you can have Jesus Christ, but you need to be circumcised too for, for salvation, and so that's a very that was a very important aspect of the religion to them. And all three of these are going to be used to debunk really their their attitude of justification by works and for us to understand that justification or salvation is by faith alone. And so in verse one he says, "What about Abraham? What has he found out according to the flesh? Well, what in his fleshly experience? What was?" what does the Bible say about him? And he says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. And so right away he goes to that argument that's been threaded through this passage that if Abraham could get to heaven by works, he'd have something to boast in because that was their assumption. If they believe that in their Judaistic religion that salvation was by keeping the law, by doing good works, then Abraham must have got there by doing good works as well. And David and the rest of them. They, that assumed, they had assumed, but in their confusion and their twisting of, of, of the Old Testament law, that, that's, that's how people got to heaven. And so Paul turns to their father that they treasured to prove to them that Abraham was not justified by works. If he was, he'd have something to boast about. And we've already seen in this discourse, in this conversation, that justification by faith alone eliminates boasting. We, have to, we need to realize that whenever we put our confidence in our good works, our morality, or any, anything about ourselves, then we have a reason to boast, something to pride ourselves in. And false religion does feed our pride, does it not? It tells us you can do it. You can do it. You can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Where God says, not before God. That's what it says here. He'd have something to boast about, but not before God. We've already seen that. It's what Paul's saying. He's reaching back to the previous chapters and saying, but not before God. No one's ever going to boast before God because Jesus paid it all. We've seen that already. And so he goes on here to explain himself. He says, for what does the Bible say? I love that. What does our scripture say? I always love it when the Old Testament writers reach back to the Old Testament and they quote the Bible. This isn't just their opinion. They're going to go back to the scriptures. Something very important for all of us today. All of us to recognize in our lives. What does the Bible say? And he quotes Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteous, righteousness. And so he grabs this verse out of, this, out of the life and experience of Abraham, and, and said, God says that it was his faith that brought him righteousness. His faith caused God to account to him righteousness. That. As Abraham believed in the Lord, God attributed to him, accounted to him, credited to him righteousness. And that would have been a shocking statement for a a Jewish uh, do-gooder, would it not? Abraham, here in his salvation, contradicts salvation by works. And I want to take a moment to go back to Genesis chapter 12 because I want to lay some foundations here for this portion as well as for others coming up in regards to Abraham's salvation. I think we need to look at him chronologically. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. We've been here a few years ago, but let's do some review. Let's, fresh, let's refresh ourselves. And I want you to consider the statement about that we find in Abraham's salvation. First of all, chapter 12, verse 1, where we're introduced to Abraham. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, mentioned in the, in the end of the last chapter, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's souls to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we find here the Abrahamic covenant, this initial promise to Abraham of a land, a seed, and a blessing. This is God's initial initial promise to him, but it accompanied that is a call to leave his country. Abraham, I got someplace else for you to live. It's called the land of promise. It's a place where you're going to be blessed, and you need to go there. And so here we find Abraham's call, as well as the covenant promise that God was going to, through him, make a great nation. And I want you to j- just jump down to verse 7. Here, this, is, this is significant. We'll see that in a moment. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel, on the west and with Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so here we find Abraham, uh, when he reaches the land, worshiping. He's worshiping, isn't he? He's building an altar, which is a symbol of worship. He's giving God the glory and the credit. He's worshiping, and there he calls on the name of the Lord as he waited. Because remember, when you know Abraham got to the promised land, it wasn't all built up and ready for them to move in. It wasn't a turnkey situation, was it? was a land that they would have to grow and prosper in eventually. Well, now let's go to Genesis 15 as we go past Genesis 15. Verse 3, let's start there. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And the Lord, word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And so on. Now what's interesting here, I think something we have to consider as you consider the, the history of Abraham is, is this statement a statement that is chronological. Is this the point of Abraham's salvation, or Abram at this time? Or was he already a Christian? This is simply a statement of principle. Because remember, back in in chapter 12, Abraham was called. And God generally doesn't move, call unbelievers to serve him or make them a covenant promise. Later in chapter 12, we saw in verses 7 and 8 that he worshiped the Lord God. He called on the name of the Lord. And I, and I think many Bible teachers, and I would agree, believe that Abraham was a believer before he left Ur. That he was a believer who God called, God gave a special covenant promise to, who chose him to be the father of the Jewish nation, promised him a land, and promised through him the Messiah would come. He was, he was he, and it's indicated by his worship, by building altars and worshiping and calling on the name of the Lord. And what we find, I believe, in verse 6, is simply a, a reaffirmation of his faith. He believed the Lord. This is something that already existed. He had already been accounted to him for righteousness. And that would seem to be consistent with the historical record. As we consider, when was the point of Abram's salvation? And that point of salvation is going to be important in Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 4. Let's go to chapter 17. I just want to touch on this before we go back to Romans. Verse 23 And 24, we find Abraham's circumcision, which, of course, was part of the argument in chapter 4. So let's see when that occurred. Verse 23 says, So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who was born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, and every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin." Then in chapter 21, if you get to 21, we find here, finally, the fulfillment of the covenant promise. The promised son, chapter 21, verse 1 says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And so we find these order of events, and they're important, as, as, as you'll see as we go through Romans chapter 4. And so let's go back there. And so when we consider this, this passage, which is actually quoted many places, Abraham believed God was counted to him for righteousness, as mentioned later in this chapter again, as well as in Galatians, we recognize that it's likely that that conversion was something that occurred in Ur before he was called, before he went, or at least maybe at his call at the very least. Well, he goes on then to say, and the point of this is, that Abraham believed God and for the point of argument in this, in this few verses. It was counted to him for righteousness. And he goes on to explain in verses 4 and 5 where he says, now to him who works, he's, he's, he used il- Abraham as an illustration, and now he's going to go back to the argument. Now to him who works, the wages are counted, not counted as grace, but as a debt. And what he's saying here is that working your way to heaven contradicts the concept of grace. You know, any good works program, he's saying here, would put God in debt to the person working. And we understand that concept. When we work, we earn ages. And the paying of wages is not based on grace at all. You earned it. You, they owe you a paycheck. Instead, you in debt your employer when you put your time in. Whether you punch a clock or submit a a, uh, invoice for your work, you are indebting your employer, and that's completely a works-based system. You work, you get paid. You don't work, you don't get paid. Maybe not so much these days, but that's the way we we live much of our lives. You know, when we punch a time clock, we're owed, owed wages. But even in other areas of our lives, when we are penalized for a wrong, we have a debt to pay off, some type of fine or do the time or whatever the case may be. We understand in life that when we work hard at something, we can be successful at something. There is that, there's that work and reward concept that we find all based on the concept of works. And that's a, that's a normal principle, but not in salvation. That's the point in this passage. And that's why he says in verse 5, he has... the throws in that wonderful three-letter word, but. But is a word of contrast in verse 5. But to him who works not. There's a different way to uh, attain righteousness in God's program. It's not one who works and indebts God, who says, God, okay, I gave this much money, I went to church, I did some good, I taught Sunday school, I was baptized, and all these things. Now, you owe me heaven. And a lot of people, that'll be their argument when they stand before God. At least they think that'll be their argument. It might simply say, well, I wasn't as bad as the guy down the street. That's because I did all these good things. I'm, I'm a good person. God, you owe me a chance at heaven. But not before God. Not even with Abraham, the, the recipient of God's covenant promise. But to him who works not instead. This is the principle of grace, and they, they are contrary the one to the other. But to him who does not work. You know, wouldn't it be great to go get a job, go apply for a job? And the employer says, okay, you're hired, but don't come to work. I'm just going to put money in your account. (laughs) Now, we'd all like to find that place to work, wouldn't we? Some of us might think that's how we can get away with it. But that's what God says. This isn't a works program. This isn't a works. Instead, I'm offering to you righteousness free, but to him who does not work, but instead believes. And belief is a non-meritorious word because the value is in its object. In fact, God is using the principle of works and and the principle of believing in contrast here. He's using it to help us to understand both concepts that works, trust is trusting in ourselves, faith is trusting in another, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the value is in the work of Christ, is it not? But so to him that works not, but instead believes. On him who justifies the ungodly. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the focus of the gospel, which we've been discussing since Romans 1.16. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Righteousness is accounted to him. He simply puts it to our account. It's freely provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now God sees believers in a positive balance, in their righteousness account not in a negative balance of unrighteousness, not a zero balance of nothing, but in a positive balance of righteousness which has been credited to them, accounted to them, not a righteousness earned by works, and a righteousness which is a gift, deposited freely to us, credited to us, when we trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior. That's a wonderful thing. We so often think that we, when God sees us, he sees us as a stinker we are. Instead of he sees us, he sees us as his child, righteous in Christ, And someday he's going to take us to heaven where that righteousness will be fully realized. But then he goes on to celebrity number two. After Abraham, let's go to Jewish celebrity number two, David. Just like David says, you know, David agrees with this, he says. In verse six, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who in lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David agrees that righteousness is freely credited to those who, who believe. Now the word impute, at least in some versions, uses the word impute. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The word impute means to be to credit, to account. It's really the same word that is used in verse 5, accounted. And in, in, We have this, this word that's not common to our vocabulary, the word to impute. They all mean the same thing. Some of your versions use the word credited or counted to your account, and the concept is that God simply puts it to your account freely. And we see here that David describes the blessedness. First of all, this transaction of imputed righteousness, credited righteousness, is blessed. It's a blessing. It's a blessing because it's free. It's a blessing that we could be ever forever grateful for, for the standing we have in Christ. Secondly, it's apart from works. Here. In verse 6, it's the blessedness of the man. The man is blessed. Secondly, it's a righteousness apart from works. It's unearned, undeserved. It's given freely. It's apart from works. Thirdly, it involves those who are forgiven. In David's quote here, Psalm 32, blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven. It's for the forgiven. And so when the gospel is preached to people, when you and I respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, not only we're we forgiven once and for all and forever, but also, w- along with that forgiveness package comes this imputation package, this credit, this account, accounted practice that God attributes to us righteousness. And lastly, in verse 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Part of that package means that God isn't holding your sin against you. That's the other side of imputation. He's not crediting your sin to you. It ought to be. You might think, what happened to that balance? You see, God says he's not holding it because we know he held it against Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Why could he do that? Because he imputed them to another. Isaiah 53 reminds us that God laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. God, Jesus took our negative account of righteousness upon himself, so that God in turn could forgive us and, and impute to us the righteousness of Christ in which we stand. How grateful we ought to be. How, 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 joy, how much joy that should bring to our, our hearts. And though it cost Christ his all on the cross, it was an expensive transaction. It cost Christ everything. It cost us nothing. It's given freely by his grace as God reaches down to bring us the good news of salvation so that we could trust him so now we no longer fear death, we never longer fear the judgment of God, our sins have been imputed to another, and in its place we've been given righteousness. We call it the great exchange. And today you and I rest in the assurance of being declared right in Christ. I'm reminded of when we think of the gratitude we owe of Romans chapter 5, when all the angels and the saints are gathered together and and they bring praise to God. They, they erupt in a chorus. Verse 9 of ro- Revelation 5 said, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy, Lord. to Take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and people and nation. And made us kings and priests to our God, and on and on they go. And they sing a new song. And that should be on our hearts every day, shouldn't it? Because we recognize the great price that was paid as, Jesus, as our righteousness, unrighteousness, was attributed to Christ, and in his place we stand in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity that you seek to bring us in this passage in regards to understanding salvation by faith alone. Thank you, Father, that you were you in your great love for us, you sent the Lord Jesus to die, and he was willing to go to the cross to take our sins upon himself. Thank you in your grace that you offered that to us freely, apart from works, and that we can have assurance because salvation is not dependent upon us, but is dependent upon the full and final and complete work of Christ on the cross. And Father, you keep your word, you keep your promises, you tell us, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And so, Father, we're thankful for the cross of Christ. May we go our way rejoicing in that foundation that we have. And may we go on our way seeking to discover more of the riches of your grace and your kindness towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So apply these things now to our lives. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name.